fans of Tour Guide Tell All. Hello, all our loyal listeners. Thank you guys for coming back to another episode. This is December. We have been doing this for all of 2021 by this time. This is the end of the year. Uh, We are celebrating some holiday stuff here at the pod, and we celebrate in a big way because the capital city gets down with some holiday stuff. So we are going to do a holiday episode. I want to mention first up, uh, thank you to all our patrons who have been so wonderful this whole year. You guys are the best. Uh, You have really made this possible and we couldn't do this without you. So yay. Thank you for your support in 2021. And if you have thought about becoming a, a patron supporter, 2022 is coming up and that would be a great time. We've got a bunch of great episodes look coming at you we have some great patron only episodes so it'll be a good christmas gift i think uh or holiday gift of any type uh we are also running our uh, holiday light tour in the if you're in the dc area we run tours of all the sort of holiday light extravaganza from the white house christmas experience uh up through city center and uh a bunch of different things so it is there's a lot going on uh in on as far as tours so if you're going to be in the area come on a, a lovely tour with us we are great on the pod but we're actually even better in person uh and we did a holiday episode last year so if you're really into the holiday theme and you want to go all in look for our episode last december where we talk about christmas traditions at the white house so that might be something fun if you're trying to get into the uh christmas spirit maybe you're listening to this while you're drinking some eggnog or trimming your tree that would be really delightful uh but before we sort of i went a little too far and we have not introduced ourselves which is a shame so uh first up I am Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are the, the Rebecca's. Ah, our Christmas gift to you all was doing that perfectly. Yes. yes. Huzzah. Right. So uh, be- before we jump into our episode, Rebecca, what's your favorite DC thing to do during the holidays? Do you have like a favorite spot, a favorite place? You know, I used to. Um, they're used to the, the, um, Four Seasons used to do a Christmas tree contest. Like they'd have different artists would design different Christmas trees and you could walk around. They had like beverages and it was very delightful. And they also had a nice bar where you could get better beverages. Uh, and that was really nice. And I think they, I don't know when they stopped that, but it was right around the pandemic times. And that was always kind of a bummer. Uh, I always loved the Georgetown Glow uh, in the, when, uh, which they do not holiday themed, but definitely holiday time. And um I don't know, the White House Christmas experience just seems very overwhelming to me. It's like amazing and large and it's a lot, but I always love to walk around it and uh, see all the ornaments made by the different states. What about you? What's your favorite Christmas thing in it's, DC? We were kind of talking about this and it leads into our episode, but the Willard Hotel is one of my favorites and we'll talk about why. I also really love, uh, there's a restaurant in Georgetown, Philomena, uh, mm-hmm. that I love during Halloween and I love it during Christmas because yeah. they just explode with decor. So not only does is Philomena like a great woman-owned business that has incredible food and has been in Georgetown like, you know, 30 years or whatever, 40 years, it's also just like the place to go if you just want to be like engulfed with holiday decorations and I love it 
It's one of my favorites. I also, more contemporarily, as you know, we're a big fan of Tiki Bars, uh, Matt Mm -hmm. and I. uh, And so we like Archipelago um, on U Street and they do like a holiday overlay where it's like Christmas themed Tiki drinks. Nice. And it's like a Tiki Santa vibe. And I'm very into that. So that's like one of my favorite sort of holiday things to do. I have not been to Philomena since the pandemic. So I don't know, this might be, this might be at this December. I might, it might be time to go back. Yep. I agree. Definitely. Definitely. I love it. Um, so we are going to talk today about our favorite and very dear spots in Washington, DC, one that has a local resonance and like a national and even an international residence resonance. There is so much history that we want to give it its own pod. And so we're going to talk about the Willard Hotel, uh, which is uh, presidents and patriots and foreign princes and all kinds of cool people have stayed at the Willard. It's one of the oldest hotels in DC and we're going to give it a little bit of history and talk about some holiday stuff. And it's going to be great. Yeah. I love the Willard. Um, I just, it's one of those things that one of those places that I genuinely enjoy going myself and I love recommending it to guests or hearing about guests experience. And it just ties into a lot of topics that we love on this podcast. Um, We're going to, spoiler, talk about Lincoln, as we often do, Um, but there's quite a few familiar names that will come up today uh, as we talk about the Willard, but let's kind of break it down. I think um, most people, if you know the Willard, you sort of know this beautiful hotel, Pennsylvania and 14th Street, or yeah, that's kind of like the big intersections, Pennsylvania and 14th, um, beautiful, like 12-story structure. Um, That is not what the Willard looked like initially. That is not the Willard's original iteration. The earliest version of the Willard is uh, established in 1816. It's kind of an amalgamation of structures and row houses kind of grouped together. Um, They're purchased by a man named Colonel Taylor III. Um, If you have ever been to the Octagon House, (laughs) Rebecca's giving a Taylor face where she's like, ooh, intrigue. Um, if you ever been to the Octagon House, it is the Taylor, same Taylor family. Uh, Colonel Taylor is going to invest pretty heavily in DC real estate in the early 1800s, and then especially during and after the War of 1812. So he's a bit of a like land baron. He's kind of into investing in real estate, getting into properties, and um, he's going to own this series of structures uh, along Pennsylvania Avenue. But he doesn't actually run them. He leases mm-hmm. them to a man named Joshua Tennyson, and it becomes initially. Tennyson's Hotel. And the Willard has been called a lot of things before it became the Willard. Various names include Williamson's Mansion Hotel, Fuller's American House, and the City Hotel, which was not an exaggeration. In the early 1820s and 30s, there were not many hotels along Pennsylvania Avenue. There were not many hotels in the heart of downtown DC. And so when you said the city hotel, people kind of knew what you meant um, because there wasn't a lot and there wasn't a lot that had stayed in the same location for very long. Uh, As we get to the 1840s, Taylor's son, Benjamin Ogle Taylor, which is a great name, is running these, or is he owns these properties and he's tired of people coming and going. He's tired of tenants that are constantly changing over. He is just desperate for someone who can run this series of buildings make it profitable and just like set up a permanent business. And he finds that and a man named Henry Willard. Yes, Henry Willard is going to combine these several buildings into a single structure and enlarge it to four stories high. 
So if you're familiar with like the modern Willard, it's very tall. It's much more than four stories. Uh, and so the Willard was four stories is like the enlarged version. Much of DC was a lot smaller pre-Civil War. Buildings were made out of different material. And uh, the Willard Hotel was apparently at the time a modern wonder. And that's a direct quote. Uh, the author, Joshua Zeitz, and this is a quote from uh, him, the Willard was a modern wonder with 150 guest rooms, lecture and meeting halls, and a massive bar and dining room where hundreds of patrons gorged themselves daily on fish, oysters, venison, and good champagne, which sounds frankly like it would be right up my alley. All of those things sound good. And it's kind of amazing because when Henry Willard takes this over, he's only 25 years old. So he's relatively young when he starts this endeavor. He had had some hotel experience. He's from Vermont. And he has sort of this reputation of like a good landlord and a good kind of, uh, you know, steward. But he really takes his little kind of small town experience and he takes the Willard, which had previously been described by Charles Dickens as a simple long row of small houses and mm -hmm. turns it into a world-class hotel. So he does this, I mean, 1847 is when he takes it over. By 1860, it is the talk of the world. Um, yes. People are very impressed by the Willard. People are seeking it out. Um, you know, this is not a time where D.C. was necessarily a tourist destination yet. If you came to D.C., it was typically because you had business to conduct. And so Willard really saw the potential financially of having a hotel that didn't just have the bare basics or just cater to men that were traveling for business, but to really make it the kind of place where the leisure class would want to spend their money. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to be fancy as he like it caters to the leisure class. It's going to get increasingly opulent and he is appealing at this point to the senators, congressmen, presidents of the United States uh, are going to stay at the Willard. So it has become utterly opulent and very like delightful. And it is, was, and is a block from the White House. So it has the benefit of location. It is near the sort of center of power. And Washington, D.C. was obviously quite a bit smaller back then and they didn't have cars. So proximity to the Capitol, proximity to all these places where you're going to have meetings, proximity to the White House is going to be really key to the Willard success because this way you can you don't have to go too far for your meetings uh, which is very important and it also is going to develop something that the Willard has today which is that what they call Peacock Alley which is basically the place that you kind of see and be seen in Washington DC you know Washington has a very strict society there's a lot of you know congressmen and um, all different sorts of levels of DC society and Peacock Alley is exactly that it's where people go to literally strut their stuff and that's going to develop about this time so the Willard is a very becoming a very big deal Eventually, um, the during the Civil War, author Nathaniel Hawthorne said Willard's, um, quote, may be much more justly called the center of Washington and the Union than either the Capitol, the White House, the State Department. This is exactly the kind, yeah, that's quite an endorsement. It's exactly the kind of um, reputation Henry Willard wants for this hotel. He wants it to be a place to see and be seen for movers and shakers. Um, and as you were going to say, eventually Willard buys the property. So it's not enough. He doesn't just want to lease this and be a tenant. He wants to be a hotelier. He wants to be 
um, fancy schmancy. So he buys it from Taylor, um, Benjamin Taylor in 1864. However, this is not going to go very smoothly. There's going to be a five-year protracted legal battle over the purchase. And there's going to be debate on the currency, what kind of currency to use, whether this um, deal needed to be paid in uh, paper currency or whether it needed to be backed by gold um, and by something with, with lasting value. During the Civil War, currency has a fluctuating um, value. Yeah. And so Taylor's going, okay, you know, you say you're going to pay me this, but this in paper money may not be worth this right six months from now and so eventually it becomes a supreme court case willard versus taylor so it goes before the supreme court in 1869 and they basically say the the basic gist of this and again we've said many times we're not lawyers so there's a lot of legal schmeagle that goes into this particular case but basically says that the price that they agreed upon for the sale is fair but willard had to pay it in a particular kind of currency that was backed um buy some actual real value uh, and so couldn't just pay him in like paper currency right so Taylor does get get fairly compensated but it is sort of interesting that there is like coming off of this war a lot of concern about what the value of money actually is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Willards continue to run this hotel um the Willard the Willard family uh and in 1901 they are going to turn it into what we see today the current 12-story structure is built the architect is a man from uh, New York named Henry Janeway Hardenberg, and he's a big, important architect in New York, primarily doing hotels. Some maybe you've heard of, the Waldorf Astoria and the Plaza, two very famous New York hotels. Waldorf Astoria has a peacock alley, so it's not surprising that when he does this grand um, sort of rebuild of the Willard, he sort of adds a official peacock alley to sort of mimic what had already been happening in the 1800s. Um, he also designs a number of other sort of notable New York buildings, including the Dakota, the famous apartment building from Rosemary's Baby and a number of other things um, in, in history. Um, so I just love that. I love that this is really, you know, when we think about the fanciest hotels in America, the Willard is designed by the man who has designed those. And that's what he's going for. It was definitely catering to a more exclusive or a, or a higher paying class in the 19th century, but in the early 20th century, they're very much hitting into that gilded age and they want this hotel to reflect that. Oh, yes. And that's what you're looking at. You're looking at it's the Beaux-Arts style. It's, this is at the same time relatively as Union Station and a lot of these other grand buildings. So this is kind of tying into what we were talking about a little a few uh, months ago as far as architecture and how it is reflecting the sort of ideals that we have as a nation. So that's kind of what the Willard is. It's not a public building, certainly, but it is they want to put D.C. on the map and the Willard's going to help with that. And so it's this very beautiful building. Building. it kind of resembles the plaza it's like you can kind of tell that it's the same sort of mind that comes up with them so this very large very ornate um building uh right around the corner from the white house and this is really becomes a pretty um profitable endeavored for the Willards. The various members of the Willard family will be valued themselves uh, anywhere from 1.5 million to 7 million, depending on how much they had invested in the hotel. So not only are they catering to a very exclusive class, but if you had a million dollars in the first part of the 20th century, that was a lot of money. It's a lot of money mm -hmm. today, to be clear. If anybody yes. wants me to see or test it and give us a million dollars and see if it's a lot of money, we will yes, do that. Yes, we'll volunteer for that. Yes, 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 yes. But 
Um, so the, these gentlemen, the Willards, uh, have made themselves quite, quite wealthy running this hotel as well. And then sort of tragically, 1922, a fire. So this fire is comes on the heels of something called the gridiron dinner which is a dinner that still happens it doesn't happen at the willard anymore but it still happens and it's a big to do and you know fancy people get dressed up and drink fancy champagne cocktails and things and this is 1922 so we're in the midst of the prohibition so they had to smuggle in all this like prohibition era gin and some of the people at this gridiron dinner it can get a little crazy and the story that i have heard is that some people weren't perhaps as diligent as they should be being a little worse for the wear uh, about putting out all the candles in the dining room and they ignite and you know spread and the fire department is called and they have to evacuate large portions of the uh, hotel including the vice president of the united states calvin coolidge who was staying at the willard at the time and John Philip Sousa, several senators, uh, the founder of Paramount Pictures, and many like press folks. The gridiron dinner has to do with uh, newspapers and the, and the press corps. Uh, and so there are many people staying at this hotel who've been at this dinner who are a little intoxicated. This is the middle of the night. And so now they're all milling around. And thankfully it was the May, it was May. So it wasn't like winter time. Wasn't <laughs> but I always think about them like a little drunk in their like silk pajamas oh, and yeah. robes, mm-hmm. <laughs> dressing yep. gowns. That is exactly what I picture. And so they're kind of milling around the park that is across the street from the uh, the Willard. And some of them I can only imagine must have been terribly put out by this. Calvin Coolidge apparently was not one of them. He apparently enjoyed his experience smoking a cigar in his gym jams, kind of wandering around. Um, and the fire costs $250,000 uh, t- uh, in damages, which would be about three and a half million dollars in today's money. Like it was a significant fire. This is a huge hit to the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, these kinds of repairs are going to cost a lot of money. The Willard family is going to then be in a hole and then there's going to be a depression not too long after this. So this is going to be a little bit of the beginning of the the first decline of the Willard. Mm-hmm. Um, I will mention too at the fire, a, a little side story I love is apparently when they were close to getting the all clear, but they hadn't told the guests they could go back in. Calvin Coolidge wanted to go back inside. And so he tries to go in and they're like, uh, excuse me, sir. Like, what are, you, what are you trying to do? And he's like, oh, I, I'm the vice president. And the guy goes, oh yeah, of course, go, go in. And then a minute later, he calls back after him. Wait, wait, vice president of what? <laughs> and Calvin Coolidge says, vice president of the United States. And he's like, oh, I thought you were vice president of the insurance company. No, you can't go back up yet. (laughs) But I sort of love this story, which may be apocryphal, um, but has been put in the post many times. Uh, I love this story because if you know a little bit about Calvin Coolidge, you know that his nickname was Silent Cal. He's sort of famously taciturn and he would probably not have been the kind of guy walking around like, I'm the vice president of the United States. But the fact that like this person has no clue who he is. Mm -hmm. And Calvin Coolidge was not just a guest at the hotel. He was living there at the time. We've Mm -hmm. actually had several vice presidents use the Willard as a residence um, because there was no official residence for the vice president until the 1970s so I sort of love him as I imagine him in his silk pajamas uh just going like I'm the vice president of the United States yeah come on guys I don't you know who I am 
In fact, uh, Calvin Coolidge remains at the Willard after he becomes president for the first couple of weeks while the um, widowed Mrs. Harding is moving out of the White House. And so they have the president's flag flying out of the Willard because it's like the official sort of residence of the president. It's very fancy. There are pictures of it all around the Willard. It's very nice. Um, <laughs> In 1946, the Willard family sells out their shares uh, and the hotel takes a decline. And to the point where 20 years later, in 1968, they're just going to close one day with no notice. Before we find out what happens to the Willard next, Tour Guide Tell All is sponsored by DC by Foot, a walking tour company in Washington, DC. Our hosts and researchers, Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner, as well as our producer editor, Candon Arsenega, are all tour guides with DC by Foot. So if you want to join us in person, book a walking tour at dcbyfoot.com. For behind-the-scenes glimpses into the podcast, as well as photos related to this episode, follow the podcast on social media, at tourguidetellall on Instagram and Facebook. Okay, back to the Willard. And they are going to reopen several years later. In 1986, they reopen as a partnership with the Intercontinental Hotel and the um, Pennsylvania Hotel. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> it's the Intercontinental Hotel and it's like the Pennsylvania Redevelopment District. Oh, it's yeah. a private sort of group that um, wanted to redevelop Pennsylvania Avenue as America's main street uh, in the 1980s. Um, so it's not sometimes people think it's a city project or that it's done as some sort of public historic preservation by the Park Service or something like that. It's not. This is entirely private corporations and private groups uh, that kind of come together with the Intercontinental Hotel group being the one really to run and operate the hotel and they still operate it today uh and in fact they prefer that we call it the intercontinental willard hotel but it's just hard to remember so we're going to call it the willard yeah 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 yeah, we definitely are apologies to our friends at intercontinental hotels (laughs) i don't know maybe if i had a night like in a fancy suite i could remember to call it the internet i know right maybe if we could stay there and had like champagne comped or whatever i would remember to call it the intercontinental so I do think it's sort of fascinating. This is a hotel that sort of survives um, pretty unbroken from 1816 uh, all the way to 1968. And then it just closes, right? There's no sort of big buildup to it. Um, there's a decline in general sort of downtown. People are, are other areas of the city are flourishing. Um, people are expanding into this outer region. Um, you know, the fire, the depression, all of that takes a big toll on the building of uh, the Willard family when they sort of get out of it. They, the, the people that take it over don't have the same investment, but it's mm-hmm. sort of incredible that like this very important historic landmark just is like closed. And there is sort of this 20 years where there's like not any certainty on if it's going to reopen. Right. And we're very fortunate that we did have a group come together and say, let's, let's pull our resources. Let's, let's preserve this. And I just can't imagine this like landmark that's a block from the White House being closed and like vacant for that long. Like that must have just been such a weird vibe right where it is because the will is just so like well positioned. There's a bunch of other hotels in that area. It's a great place to stay downtown. Uh, and it's just so vibrant all the time. There's always somebody interesting staying at the Willard. Uh, so I can't imagine it being closed super long and there are so many stories like as I was doing the research for this like the Willard has its own little museum believe it or not uh in their hotel like they have pictures and like all kinds of old memorabilia and things so there are so many different stories uh about the Willard uh hotel 
Yeah, absolutely. And so that's kind of just an overview of the actual building. We definitely want to dig in a little bit and talk about some of the individual stories of the Willard, but we wanted to give you a little sense of kind of the timetable. I think the first thing we should just tackle is actually Joseph Willard himself. And Joseph Willard is Henry Willard's brother. And I sort of love his story. He is, you know, from Vermont, like his brother, Henry, and he goes out west for the gold rush, as many people did. And it did not go great for him. No, not really. No. He comes back broke, right? Like many people do. He goes out, he tries gold rushing, doesn't make any money, loses everything he has. And he comes back and he's like, oh, hey, brother, you, um, you, uh, started a hotel. That's cool. Maybe I could work for you. (laughs) And Henry is a very nice brother and he brings Joseph in as an equal partner. And Joseph is really, um, kind of the bookkeeper. He handles a lot of the book and office affairs, a lot of the day to day. Um, and, and this is really where Joseph's going to make his, his fortune and his, um, sort of status. Um, but when the civil war begins, Joseph is from Vermont. He's a really loyal unionist, as is his brother, Henry. Um, They're big supporters of Lincoln. Um, We'll talk about Lincoln, but they are thrilled to host Lincoln at the hotel when they do. Uh, And Joseph decides he's going to join the Union Army. And he joins when he's 41 years old. Now, he is not obligated to because he's too old. He's older. Yeah, 41's kind of senior, but he gets promoted quickly and he gets to stick around the D.C. area and he's going to fight. And um, he is going to come across a woman. Uh, Her name is Antonia Ford. She's from this area, the Fairfax, Virginia. She's 23 and she's feisty and flirtatious and she's from Fairfax County. And when the United States Army soldiers take over the area and sort of chase out uh, the Confederates, uh, they're gonna lodge in her father's house and she's gonna flirt with the soldiers. listen uh and uh she's gonna pass on information to a bunch of people but including mosby's raiders uh and eventually she's found out because she apparently isn't as good a spy as she thought she was uh and she's gonna get arrested and transferred to the old capital prison which is uh on the side where the supreme court now is and her military escort is wouldn't you know it joseph willard ah. And he, they're going to fall in love. Yeah, it's sort of fascinating to me because she, like, depending on which historians you believe, was possibly engaged to numerous men, wrote many a love letter, was like the most desired belle of, of all. And yet, despite all odds, she they fall in love. And truthfully, I think he falls in love with her and is just so ardent that she sort of gets worn down by the his willingness to sort of give it all up for her. Um, but it is sort of amazing to me because she could have probably any Confederate general she wants or any Confederate soldier. Um, she's known to flirt with many of them and the letters um, that have been recovered are quite saucy. Uh, and yet, yet this, this particular man... I think at this point he's major, right? He's major yeah. Willard. So he's, he's pretty high know, up there. Not young anymore. If he was 41 when the war started, you know, he's getting up there and she's in her 20s. Uh, and while in captivity, she's going to request all sorts of items from him, like tea and sugar and, you know, books and a needle and thread and clothing. And he gets all of these things for her, which I cannot imagine 
you know, goes unnoticed by his superiors. Like what? You're supplying all this stuff for this prisoner? Anyway, he is going to use his influence to get her freed with the, apparently she promises that he's gonna, she'll take the loyalty oath um, and he's the only witness. So who can say if she actually did or not? I'm gonna go with a no, she did not. But yeah, it's sort of like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I'll get her free. We'll make her take this oath of allegiance. That's like the deal. She has to take this oath of allegiance. So she does, according to the witness, this man deeply in love with her. So my guess is absolutely not. She no. probably didn't. She comes from a very ardent secessionist family. Her father is, you know, a big secessionist and Confederate supporter. So I sincerely doubt that she has this change of heart just because of him. Um, but it were, it's enough to get her freed, which she is very, very grateful for. She does marry him, although he starts pressuring her like uh, immediately, which is a problem. He's an officer in the United States Army and her she's a strong her family are all Confederate supporters. He is ultimately going to resign from the army because as it turns out, the army sort of frowns on you forming a romantic relationship with the spies that you're like, you know, incarcerating. Um, I just have to say, too, there's this kind of fabulous back and forth where it's like, you know, he wants to marry her. She, I think, you know, at this point has been worn down as like, yeah, 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 I'll marry you, but I'm not going to marry you if you're a union officer. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to resign, come to DC. But her father is like, uh-uh, uh-uh, you want to marry her. You got to come and get her. Yeah. <laughs> There's like, because it was not easy going from Fairfax to DC at that time by carriage or horseback. And there was sort of this idea of like, you need to come and face to face with her family and then take her away to be married. So it's right. like poor Joseph Willard. He's got to like do this back and forth, back and forth. There's all this sort of negotiation about how this is going to play out. And then where can they even get married? She right. wants to get married in Fairfax and no one there will marry her to him, right. even right. when he resigns. So they have to go back to Washington, D.C. They, they are going to honeymoon in Philly. They do get married. And... Um, they have uh, at least one son, Joseph Willard, who runs helps to run Willard at some Willards at some point. They have three children, but only one that lives to adulthood, one that survives infancy. Yeah, um, who yes goes on to run the Willard and has kind of an interesting connection to a figure I know that we both like. Yeah. Um, but she doesn't live very long after their marriage. Antonia Ford dies in 1871. She had numerous health issues um, exacerbated by the times that she is held captive and incarcerated. And Willard never remarries. He really mourns her the rest of his life. He was really, truly smittenly like in love with her. Aww. And there's a fabulous quote, which I am almost certain is apocryphal, but it is what is often quoted when it comes to Antonia Ford, and she was allegedly once supposed to have said, I knew I could not revenge myself on the nation, but was fully capable of tormenting one Yankee to death, so took the major. <laughs> oh, so I took the major. So she's sort of like, I couldn't, you know, um, win this war for the Confederacy, but I could certainly torment one Yankee forever. I love Although it so she only has a few years to torment him till she dies. Um, yeah, their son, Joseph Edward Willard, do you know who his son-in-law is? I do, in fact. I know you his do. Son in, of course I know. Uh, his son-in-law is Kermit Roosevelt, the son of Theodore Roosevelt. So Joseph Willard's daughter, Belle, his only daughter, is going to fall in love with Theodore Roosevelt's son, Kermit, and they get married. 
connections, connections, connections. Everyone knows everyone, you guys. It's a real thing. We've got to do our, our Kermit Roosevelt episode. So many Roosevelts. He's so very, he's another one that's like connected to so many moments and so many things. Um, do you want to talk about the mint julep? Oh, yeah. So um, we would definitely want to touch on on the Willards, but there are lots of famous uh, people and things associated with the Willard. We thought we'd just run through a few. One of the big claims to fame the Willard is very proud of is that allegedly in 1830, the mint julep is introduced for the first time outside of Kentucky. There's a man we have talked about on this podcast. Henry Clay, um, you know, statesman and uh, member of Congress. And he is a big fan of the Willard's Bar. Um, at the time, there was a bar called the Round Robin, which is still there today, although the bar that we see today obviously dates not to 1830. But he brings the mint julep, brings the recipe, and it is, you know, as the story goes, become so popular. It is the best-selling drink at the Willard. And for many, many, many decades, it was the only place you could get a mint julep in Washington, D.C. So um, they are very proud to have the mint julep. It is still on the menu, and it is Henry Clay's recipe for the mint julep. So very specific. Um, it's, it is his recipe and his alone. Yes. Um, no, no one else's. Um, I love that particular uh, little tidbit. Lots and lots of presidents connected to the Willard. The first president to patronize there, Franklin Pierce. Secretly, secretly fierce. fierce. <laughs> we did not plan that. Um, Franklin Pierce, secretly fierce. Um, we have talked about Pierce on a few episodes, um, but he's going to kind of be the first to stay there. Um, it was called Willard City Hotel at the time, but he sort of sets off a little bit of a tradition. Um, you know, other presidents, this is sort of the hotel, the place, the proximity to the White House. Um, so many important events are held there that presidents start making the Willard kind of a regular stop, whether it's um, to stay, whether it's to attend to events. Um, there are a lot of really important balls and sort of society things in the 1850s. And then as we get to 1860, we have a new president elected, a president that we love, President <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned before, the Willards are from Vermont. They're very loyal supporters of the Union of the United States of Lincoln's election. And Lincoln has a really tough trip making his way to Washington, D.C. as president-elect because there are death threats against Lincoln. There are um, t- there's talk of assassination plots. Uh, and this is 1860, 18, or 1861. Um, inauguration back then was March. So um Lincoln has to travel very carefully. Um, They're basically smuggling him into the city of Washington, and he is going to stay at the Willard um, for about 10 days or so. He arrives February 23rd. Um, He was supposed to stay over in Maryland, but there was a thwarted assassination plot in Baltimore, and so they rush him into the district. Uh, He's joined by his wife and sons, uh, and he stays there until his inauguration. So he's there for about 10 days, a little less than 10 days. Um, One of my favorite parts of the story is apparently he arrives. It's very abrupt. The Willards are more than happy to accommodate him, but he has forgotten his slippers. And they're like, okay, well, um, we will get you slippers. Um, And so there's a couple versions of the story. Um, People say it's the Willards, one of their father-in-laws, Henry Willard's father-in-law, whose slippers they borrow. Um, Some say it was his mother-in-law because she had really large feet. But either way, they sort of scrounge up a pair of slippers big enough for Lincoln because he's 6'4". I can't even Mm -hmm. imagine what size shoe he must have worn. I really don't know. Um, I, that seems like I a thing I should no learn. Idea. But they loaned him slippers to which Lincoln wrote a thank you note, which I find to be very nice and thoughtful. 
There are so many presidents. Ulysses S. Grant has a, a couple of different Willard ties. So Ulysses S. Grant is going to show up the day that he gets his fourth star. Like Lincoln is going to give him his fourth star, make him commanding general of the army. And Grant was not a pretentious guy. And he'd reserved a suite of the Willard, but all he had was his son with him. Like he didn't have this big entourage. And so he shows up and he, you know, asks for his room and there are a lot of soldiers, it's the middle of the war. And so the desk clerk doesn't think that much of Ulysses S. Grant is about to give him like the smallest possible room. And then someone recognizes Ulysses S. Grant and, and suddenly the Willard is very happy to help uh, the hero uh, and they put him in a very fine suite. Uh, Grant would also go there while he was president. His wife did not like him smoking cigars in the White House. And as it turns out, the only person who can tell the president what to do is his missus. Uh, and so when she doesn't want him smoking in the White House, he doesn't smoke his cigars in the White House. Um, he would go for walks to smoke and on rainy days or other inclement weather, he would go and smoke in the lobby of the Willard. Now, they didn't really love him smoking in the lobby of the Willard particularly either, but they can't say no to the president. And so he would sit there and it becomes kind of well known that he does this. And so people would come up to him and ask him for things, jobs, money, support, whatever it is, whatever they're looking for. Uh, they would come up and basically petition the president for whatever they want. And the term lobbyist had already been in use. So the idea that Grant does not coin the term lobbyist, uh, but he really popularizes it. And so the idea is because they um, approached him in the lobby of the hotel, uh, they are lobbyists. Um, my other favorite, uh, pre my, well, presidential child. So Kermit's sister, Alice, who we have talked about extensively on this pod. Uh, Alice loved the Willard as well. It was very fancy and she loved all things fancy and all very good foods. And she, while she was a teenager, while her father was president, she would um, go to the Willard and have, um, and have dinner and she would smoke which you weren't supposed to do, uh, but you can't tell the daughter of the president, particularly not Alice Roosevelt, no. And so what the Willard stewards and waiters would do is put up screens uh, around her so that she could smoke and it wouldn't offend all of the other guests at the Willard, which <laughs> is just so Alice and so freaking amazing. Um, Mark Twain loved the Willard. He loved the F Street entrance, and then he would, be, which is not the main entrance today, and then would basically promenade down Peacock Alley. So Mark Twain was a big fan of the Willard Hotel. And he actually writes sort of several, like he loves it, but he also sort of snips at the Willard a few times. Um, at one point, he sort of calls it like a second rate or seventh rate hash house. <laughs> I feel like that's very Mark Twain. I feel like all the things he loves, he also trashes. Yeah. So it's sort of like he writes about how much fun he has and, and how many important people are there and all this stuff. But then it's sort of like, oh, yeah, the Willard, that old seventh, seventh rate hash house. Which, speaking of a hash house, you know, a place that has food, apparently Lincoln did get carryouts, takeout from the Willard, even when he was at the White House. His secretaries, um, Hay and Nicolay would often bring um, food. They would often go to the Willard to get their daily bread, they called it. Um, they'd go to the Willard to eat and lunch, luncheon and do that. And they'd often bring food back for Lincoln, who was often too busy to focus on eating. Um, there's definitely some good, I think, sort of pop culture connections to um, the Willard, or I say pop culture. Let me reference a guy from like 100 years ago, George M. Cohan. 
George M. Cohen, the great composer um, who wrote many patriotic songs. Um, he said one of his favorite places to write was at the Willard. Um, he would write many of his plays there. He wrote many of his songs. Um, his song over there becomes kind of the big anthem of the First World War, which is very appropriate considering our National World War I Memorial is right across the street from the Willard today. Um, similarly, Although earlier earlier is Julia Ward Howe, um, who is staying at the Willard and inspired by the Union soldiers and uh, meeting with Lincoln and sort of all of Civil War Washington to write the Battle Hymn of the Republic. She says she's asleep in her bedroom at the Willard and she says the words just come to her and she leaps up and goes to her writing desk and just gets it down as fast as she can. And she sets it to the tune of John Brown's Body, which was a pretty popular marching song for soldiers. And it becomes the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it becomes this incredibly important song of the Civil War era, but really today has become almost like a national hymn. Um, we yes. often hear the Battle Hymn of the Republic played at important national events, funerals for presidents, for example, or, or other people of note. Um, play the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Uh, the poet Emily Dickinson visited D.C. in 1855, uh, which you know a little bit about Emily Dickinson. She did not travel extensively. Um, so a visit to the Willard was a big deal. She apparently loved promenading up and down the corridors, uh, and she was quite the hit at dinner with her bold and brilliant repartee. Um, and she wrote uh, about how wonderful and uh, cosmopolitan the Willard was. Um, which yes. it absolutely was. And then um, myself, so. huge theater nerd, um, Bob Fosse would have his fatal heart attack outside the Willard Hotel. Um, his show, Sweet Charity, was being revived at the National Theater, which is just right down the street. And uh, Bob Fosse uh, does not die at the Willard. A lot of people uh, for a long time would say he died there. He doesn't. He dies at the hospital. But he has his kind of famous fatal collapse right outside the Willard. So if you are a theater buff like myself, that always sticks in my head when I'm there. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. stayed there. In fact, he's going to stay there the night before um, he delivers the I Have a Dream speech uh, at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom uh, in 1963. In fact, he's going to revise sections of the speech uh, from his suite at the Willard Hotel. And even today, the Willard is such a great spot for, it is one of the best spots in Washington for people watching. I am, it is so great. There are, I have been hearing every single kind of language uh, at the Willard. There's been uh, fancy society weddings and I saw the Dutch prime minister there once and I saw like, you know, they'll have receptions for Saudi princes and the whole thing. It's really just such a great sort of cross section of what DC is. The Willard is the, continues this sort of great tradition of being uh, international, of being the, a spot to be in. Um, it's really, um, the Willard's lovely. And really, um, it is today very, very common for international delegations to stay at the Willard to rent space. Um, it is not uncommon to walk by the Willard and see a pretty sizable security uh, detail set up because there is a head of state or a foreign dignitary staying there. Um, the Willard just has that reputation and they are quite adept at this point at dealing with security. Um, so it is one of the go-to hotels um, particularly when we have big events like, say, the United Nations uh, General Assembly and people are coming down and there's a lot of people to see the president, the Willard can be a little tough to get near. 
Yes, it can. Yes, <laughs> they have. They will block off part of F Street um, between 14th and 15th, and you have to go through a security checkpoint. If you're on the main entrance, they ha will have um, large dump trucks that they apparently rent from the city, snow plows and things, and they will station them along the side of the street there uh, for security reasons. Like it is, um, it is not unusual to see large amounts of security. Uh, for one reason or another at the Willard Hotel. And the Willard Hotel does Christmas, like in a big way. They are, uh, they're into it. They hold, they put a big tree in the center with not real presents. Um, and they just, they decorate the whole thing. Peacock Alley is today on, in normal, like non-December times, it is, uh, they have tea on Sundays, but in Christmas, they do it more, much more regularly. So there's this big fancy tea that you can, on Peacock Alley, you have, they've set up chairs, they have a harpist and Christmas decorations and the whole thing. And it's just really lovely. The Willard does uh, Christmas and the holidays just so beautifully. It's truly one of my go-tos, and I'm really glad to know that um, some of my favorite things are coming back. Um, every day uh, during December at 5.30, they have carolers and performers uh, coming in and singing in the lobby, and you can usually buy hot toddies and little drinks from the lobby cart, um, or you can go to the Round Robin after, or you can go to Cafe du Parc and have dinner. Um, but it really is... Um, so lovely. The holiday tea. These are all things that were kind of nixed last year because of COVID. It's really, really nice um, to sort of see all of that back. And there is just no better place if you're downtown and you just want that little whiff of like holiday spirit, walk through the Willard Hotel. They encourage people to come in during the holidays, look at the Christmas tree, enjoy the decorations, hear the carolers. So come see it. Um, they do beautiful decorations outside. Um, and we, we do this as a stop. Um, we see it from the outside on our holiday lights tour. So I really encourage people to check that out. And we'll put some links in the show notes if you're interested in, for example, taking advantage of the holiday tea. We'll drop yes. a little link in there so you can book. Reservations, highly recommended. Yes, very, very highly recommended. Uh, the Willard gets, they, there are only so many spots for tea and it's very popular. Uh, but yes, I love the Willard very much. They don't bother me when I sit there in between tours and people watch and read. So it's really um, very, very lovely for me. Um, and the Willard does the holidays. It's very beautiful and fantastic to stay. So I am super excited that we took the chance to like dig in a little on this fun history. Absolutely. Uh, it, like I said at the beginning, it's just I when I think DC, like holidays, I think the Willard. And I, it certainly doesn't hurt that it's, you know, a block from the White House Christmas or the National Christmas Tree. And so it's kind of just part of that whole like feel for me. So I love the Willard. We really just scraped the surface and doing this just remind me too of like several people who deserve a full in-depth episode. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. just how Willard, the Willard, like so many things we talk about is just connected to so many interesting people and eras. Um, and I certainly, I hope listeners, if you've not visited, we'll, we'll take a chance to visit. Definitely. So this is it. This is our last regular episode of the year, huh? Of 2021. It's so exciting. I can't believe it. Wow. That's crazy. crazy. <laughs> the whole year. We're coming up, sliding down the home stretch to two years of the pod. It's very amazing. Um, we are, well, it's, it's the last uh, for the regular feed. There's going to be a patron episode for our patrons. So you will get, uh, patrons will get another, uh, an episode uh, before the end of the year. But we have some exciting stuff lined up in January. Uh, Becca's going to bring out her Texas and it's going to be delightful. Um, and we're going to talk about some exciting people for Black History Month and Women's History Month. And it's 
cool. So um, thank you guys for sticking with us in 2021. And we are excited uh, to come back at you in your ear holes for 2022. Thank you guys so much. Everybody have a safe and wonderful holiday season. We love you guys. We are so appreciative of all of you. Really, really enjoy the rest of this year and we will see you. Um, we'll, we'll be back in your ears in 2022.